starting with verse 1. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet. Rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you've come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf tender and good and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of the women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we come to you in your word, needing help. We want for it to apply to our lives. We want for it to change our hearts. That's our, that's our desire. That's why we are here but that is work that only you can do. And so we ask that you would do it. We ask that as we, as we read your word, that what you would have for us today, you would not let us leave without, hearing, without us hearing it and knowing it well. Would you be with us and would you help us? And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, for three years, I worked at the Forney Chick-fil-A um, I was there for like the, the grand opening team and all that. And I got to meet some really amazing friends. Like one of my best friends in my life came from that time. Um, but there were also people that I just hated working with. Um, one in particular was a girl named Lauren. I hated working with Lauren um, because she was everything I was not as an employee. Like she was a good employee. I was a bad employee. Um, I, I was a punk teenager who was having a hard knock life in the suburbs of T-Town. Um, that's Terrell. She was, a, she was a choir girl who made straight A's from Forney. So, I, and I had to be cleanly shaven. She didn't have to do anything with her facial hair. Um, <laughs> I had to wear a hat. She could do like a cool updo and that was fine. Um, she could do, <clears throat> she could, like I had to wear the, the goofiest non-slip shoes because the guys only had like three pair to choose from. And they weighed like 300 pounds. They were the worst. And the girls got to choose from like thousands of different shoes and they were all cute and whatever. Um, and I had to clean the sloop, which is uh, when a kid had a full diaper and went down the slide. Um, the sloop, poop slide. Poop was on the slide as he went down the slide. Um, and you can bet your chicken biscuits that she never had to do that. That was only me. Um, and it wasn't just that Lauren was good at all this stuff. Like she was overly so whenever the manager was around. Um, and so that just made it like even worse. <clears throat> Um, but I didn't really care. I was like, okay, the manager's around. Sure, I'll be the same guy, the same bad employee. 
Um, but for instance, my least favorite part of working there was saying my pleasure instead of saying thank you. Like I'm just a, yeah, you're, yeah, you're welcome, man. No, no, not, say, not instead of saying thank you. Instead of saying you're welcome. Um, you know, I just wanted to say, yeah, you got it, man, or whatever. I just wanted to be, you know, casual about it. But they, they very much made you say my pleasure. Um, and she was always like, you could always hear Lauren just across the room just say, my pleasure, in her choir voice. I'm like, ugh, can't stand that girl. Um, they, but, and like, they would do a secret shopper thing where they would have people go through the drive-thru, and if you said my pleasure, then you'd get like 20 bucks or whatever. I never got the 20 bucks. Um, but, uh, so my question was always, well, what if it wasn't a pleasure to serve that person? Do I still have to say that? And like, that always really bothered me. It didn't really seem to bother anybody else. Um, but some people are just crabby before they get their Christian chicken, and especially the morning shift before people get their Christian coffee. Like, it was ridiculous. Um, so one day, I walk out, and I give this woman her meal, and I'm like, here you go. And, and she said, um, well, it took you guys long enough. And I was like, <laughs> and I started to walk away, but she was being serious. So I was like, oh, okay, well, uh, let, me, let me find a manager. Uh, I'll, I'll go and tell the manager about it. And so I'm telling the manager just all about this situation and, and what the lady said. And I can see Lauren's head just kind of pop up behind the manager. And she was like, I think I can fix this. And so the manager was like, yes, Lauren, you go and do that. You're a stand-up employee. You go and do this. Um, so she gets the lady a coupon, a new meal, a balloon. And she just goes and cheese balls it up and, and it made it great. You know, and, but we're all standing there together. And the woman says, thank you so very much. And I was like, it was most definitely not my pleasure. And Lauren did one of these things. You know, I'm standing kind of behind her. She went, as I said, it was most definitely not my pleasure. She was so upset. Um, so was the manager. I didn't last too long after that at Chick-fil-A. Um, but I tell you the story because uh, we have two completely separate responses to someone who has a whole lot of power. Um, and that's exactly what we see here in our story. So we have Abraham, who serves up this great meal, and he does so with grace and style, and he's not inconvenienced by serving at all. Um, and then we have Sarah, who just straight up lies to God, um, and then he gets called, she gets called out by God for it. And because of this, we actually get to see God ask one of the most amazing questions he asks in Scripture. Why are you laughing? <laughs> um, but our verses here really have two sides of the same coin in that they're responses to the presence of God. Their responses to the presence of God, but they're totally different, and they have two separate takeaways. But both of them serve to answer one simple question. What are we supposed to do in the presence of the, of the God Almighty? What are we supposed to do? Well, we'll see two things. <clears throat> because let's just say that the God of the Bible of, and of all creation has come down to earth, which he has, and has come to dwell in us if we are believers, then he has. Then 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? So God, just like in our verses here, shows up and is present before us. So the question becomes, well, what in the world are we supposed to do with that? Like, how are we to respond to God's presence? Because the truth of the matter is that since God is dwelling in us as believers, everything we do is in the presence of God. So it's an important question. There is no hiding. There is no sleight of hand. And that sounds kind of scary at first. Um, but this is actually the best news in the universe, as we'll see a little bit later. But the question is still, what are we supposed to do in the presence of God since we as believers are always in the presence of God? God has given us an answer in Genesis 18. So we have one story with two imperatives. The first is serve God, 
and the second is have wonder. So faith entails, the fight of faith entails both that we serve God and that we have wonder. We serve God with all that we have completely and totally and fully, and we have a joyous wonder and excitement in God because what can God not do? Both of these go together in faith. So let's just take a look at the first one. Look at verse one. And, and we'll just pause there, because what's the and there for? Uh, God shows up to Abraham in chapter 12, just some background. Uh, When he was still called Abram back in that day, to call him to leave his homeland, to go live in the wilderness, and to wait on a child to be born that was going to be a blessing to all nations. And so far, we've really seen nothing but suffering for Abraham. Like, it's been just really kind of crappy. The land he was in was dried up. Him and his nephew get into it. His nephew leaves, um, and then he gets captured. So Abraham has to go to war with all these other nations to get him back. Um, And then after 10 years of of waiting, which is suffering in its own, um, his wife has this great idea to have a baby by another woman, and that was just terrible. But all along, we've seen God show up in grace and mercy to Abraham to keep him alive and keep him sustained, and he continually shows up by miraculous means to remind Abraham of the promise of the blessing that is surely to come. And last week, God just told Abraham to step into the faith and work in that faith, but only after he has been made righteous. So it's not up to Abraham to work for it. It's not that he can attain it, but it's, no, you're you're righteous, so now work in faith. And so uh, that's actually where we find ourselves in verse 1. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre. So these oaks are just where Abraham had that first moment of faith in the Lord where, where he just went back and made an altar to, to the Lord. As he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day, um, so culturally speaking, this was just what people did during this time. Like it, This is a desert-type land. It is hot. It is way too hot to be doing any working or shepherding or farming or anything. So Abraham just sits in front of the door. Maybe he's getting a breeze. And he just takes a nap. That's what they did. But then he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. So you can imagine, like, this is one of those scenes where, like in a movie, where the person is, like, falling asleep, and their eyes go open and close, and then they, they close for a while, and they open, and something's there standing in front of them. Um, that's essentially what just happened here. Um, these three men just showed up literally out of nowhere, and they're standing in front of him. But who are these men? Keeps going. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them, and he bowed himself to the earth and said, Oh, Lord. So right there, one of these men sticks out way more than the other two. And we know who this is. This is God. This is the God which he's been in the presence of before. Like, there's a familiarity there that he's like, yeah, I know who this is. Like, I'm, I'm running to go greet this man. God shows up as a man, and he's got these other two men with him, which we'll see later are, are angels. Um, but this is just crazy because in six chapters, so far just in six chapters, God has shown up in a vision as a king, as himself, as a smoking pot and a fiery torch, as a deep darkness. And now God shows up for the only time ever mentioned in scripture as three men. So the truth there is that God will show up however, however he wants to, by whatever means he wants to, to speak directly to whatever issue he wants to. <clears throat> and all of them are miraculous and amazing. The fact that God speaks to any human being is amazing. No other religion has a God that interacts with his people in so many ways and in such ways, which is why we have Abraham's response in verse 3. O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet. Remember, they, like the, 
misnomer of Jesus, like the, the sandals. Their feet are just dirty. Like that's what they did. They're walking in the desert. Their feet are dirty. That's why they're bringing the water for his feet. And rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. Abraham just doesn't want God to leave. Like a little kid holding on to his dad's leg before he's going to work. He just doesn't want him to leave. And I think it's totally appropriate. Like when you and I are in the presence of God of all creation, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the one who upholds the universe by his words, why would we ever want to leave that? That's what Abraham is experiencing. Like he's saying, don't leave yet, God. Let me do all that I can to serve you. Essentially stall so that I can do as much as I can to just stay in your presence longer. I just want to give you honor and glory. Just stay. So their response to him. So they said, do as you have said. And then Abraham is off to the races. Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three seahs, which is uh, seven quarts of flour. So just way too much for just three men, um, of fine flour. Knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd. Remember, this is the heat of the day when nobody's supposed to do anything. Nobody's supposed to be farming or doing anything. He's running. He knows exactly who he's serving. Um, Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good. And he doesn't just pick a random one. Like He takes time to get the best one. He's in a hurry, but he's like, nope, not you, not you, the best one. Like We're talking four wins and three forks the best. And he gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. And this is absolutely just lavish hospitality. This was what you were supposed to do, culturally speaking. Um, but it was never like this. You were supposed to take care of a sojourner, not necessarily treat them like royalty. So this is way different. He stands near them like a waiter who's just, like he's waiting on the president, like he's just kind of waiting by the tree, like, you guys need anything? I'm here. Like, I want to serve you. Um, he just wants to make sure they're happy, want, wanting them to be happy. And God eats. Like, this is the very first time that we ever see this in Scripture. God eats. He doesn't have to. He's the God of the universe. He's sustained by his own self. He doesn't have to eat but he allows himself to be served by a man. God's just kicked back under a tree in the shade, resting and relaxing, enjoying some three forks and enjoying some cake. Like, you know that God has to be enjoying that service. Who wouldn't? So our faith means that we serve God, but then the question becomes, how? Because we're not in a desert taking a nap and God shows up to us. He doesn't really show up that way. Um, anymore. We don't own any calves. I don't even know what a curd is. So how are you and I supposed to serve God? Well, Colossians 3.23 says it this way. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Whatever you do, you are serving the Lord Christ. We serve in everything we do at all times. And, and the truth is, like, we're either serving flesh, sin, or we are serving the Lord. And yet again, we come upon something that is just utterly impossible. Isaiah 64, verse 6 says, All of us 
have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous acts, so all the best things that we could ever do, are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. That's the truth for us without Jesus. We can't actually serve God and the aroma of which can be pleasing to God. That service can be pleasing to God, but we actually have to be served by Jesus before we can serve. One day, uh, Jesus had just finished telling his disciples about his death uh, for the third time when a woman comes up to him with her sons. There's only 10 disciples at this time. And so she kneels before him and she asks him for something And uh, he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, listen, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we're able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the other 10 heard it, they were just really mad. They were indignant at these two brothers. So they're like, man, we, Jesus called us. We didn't come up to and like have our mom talk to him. Like, how lame is that? Um, and Jesus, so he, he knows because he's the God of the universe. So he has them come over and he, and he says, uh, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Why? Because the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus was in heaven, in full glory. And then he left glory. He left the heavens, came down, was born in a manger, Uh, took on flesh, took on blood and bones, and walked a life on this earth that was perfect and without sin, blameless. He was doing all of that with a heart to serve you and I. He does that, and then he eventually gets to the spot in his life where people hated him, and they rebuked him and mocked him and spit in his face, and eventually they began to persecute him. And as he's on the road to Calvary, He began to get beaten and scorned and people threw things at him and did horrific things to him all the way to putting him on a cross and putting nails in his hands and feet. And he cries out in that moment, Father, forgive these people for they don't know what they're doing right now. They saw Jesus as the enemy, yet Jesus' intention in coming to earth was never to establish a kingdom where he sat in his ivory tower and lorded his power and position over people. Rather, he came with a posture of grace, with a humility and a humble heart. He came to serve. And that's amazing. Jesus, God, came to serve you and me, and we don't deserve to be served at all. God in his infinite goodness and grace chose to come, chose to leave heaven, chose to leave a place where he was not hated, where the angels were worshiping him, the heavenly host was proclaiming his goodness and his greatness, and he came down here to earth so that you and I could experience new life in him under that service. Because of Jesus, we are forgiven. Because of Jesus, we have new life. 
Because of Jesus, we have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. The presence of God now dwells within us. Because of Jesus, we can walk in pure joy and purpose in life. Because of Jesus, we can spend our eternity in the presence of God the Father in heaven, worshiping him, serving him. The amazing thing about the gospel and the amazing thing about this idea of the Son of Man coming to serve, um, not to be served, and to give his life as a ransom for many is simply this. The call from Jesus is not a um, is not to hear the gospel and then say, you know what, God? Now I need to repay you back. Like, you've done all this stuff for me. You gave your life for me. Um, now I need to go and try really hard for you. Now I need to go and just do all these good things to pay it forward and make it to heaven. The call of the gospel is not necessarily to serve Jesus, but to be served by Jesus continually over and over and over again. And from that, serve. <laughs> We are served continually by Jesus, by the Holy Spirit. And as that happens in our lives, as sanctification takes place day in and a day out, then we are compelled to serve. Not for anything, but from something. How do we do that once we've been served by Jesus? Well, we serve God by encouraging a downtrodden brother or sister with the words that only you have and that, only God, has, that God has only given to you. We serve God by loving our family, by being a friend, by any of the service areas you can think of, by giving our time and effort and talents to serve others, by giving our lives as a ransom because Jesus came to do the same, not to be served. Our mistake is when we get that flipped in our lives and think, this life is to make me comfortable. Jesus' life was nowhere near that. Jesus is the reason we are able to serve. Jesus is the example of service, and Jesus is actually the means by which we serve well in his power and perfection that plays out in our lives by the Holy Spirit. The hard truth about this, though, is that since we serve at all times, that means that we, when we fall short of serving God by serving in whatever we do, then we're actually serving another God. Whether it be ourselves, our money, our kids, our family, sex, so quickly and so easily, things that are for our good and can, for our good can be worshipped and served like a God, and most of the time we don't even see it. So what do we do? We need help. What do we do? We must have others. See that Abraham did not serve God alone. He had other people alongside him, helping him, making sure it was a pleasing meal for God. This is what we must have. We cannot walk alone in our service to God, in our lives, if we do not have other people to speak into and, and say, whoa, man, that, that, that thing's kind of creeping up into a God for you. And that is a hard, that is a hard friendship, but a good <coughs> friendship. That's why Proverbs say, faithful are the wounds of a friend. It's a wound, but a good wound. So what about you? Who do you have in your life that can help you serve? In what ways can you remind yourself of Jesus' service on your behalf every day that will help you to serve? Faith means that we serve the God whom we are in the presence of by the indwelling Holy Spirit within us, but faith also means that we have wonder. Take a look at verse 9. 
They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And this is how you know this is God. Otherwise, like, they don't even know that he's married necessarily. Um, how, do they, how do these three strangers know anything about this man and his family? Um, so Abraham answers, says, she's in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. The delay, yet again, just shows God's absolute control over the entire situation. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah, excuse me, was listening at the tent door behind him. Now, this is an important distinction. Because the fact that Sarah is listening most likely means that Abraham wasn't good at explaining to her what was going on. Or that she wasn't able to understand it. Like, she's like, yeah, I know Abraham that, you know, God came to you and said, hey, all these blessings and here's the promise and da-da-da-da-da. But he didn't tell me. So it's probably that Abraham just wasn't able to convince Sarah of what was going on. So she wants to know for herself, and she's listening at the door. Because it's not enough to know about God or to know God through someone else. So she's listening. She wants to experience this for herself. And then verse 11. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So she's simply just not able to have children at this time in her life. So she laughed to herself, saying... After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? She actually shares a response with her husband in laughing. Like God <laughs> sets up the promise and she's like, huh, yeah, right. We'll see. And her words are full of self-hate. After I'm worn out, essentially, after I'm useless, after I really don't mean anything. And then she turns it on to Abraham. Uh, he's old. Shall I have any pleasure? And this isn't talking about the, the pleasure of having a baby. If you think that having a baby is a pleasure-filled thing, you're a guy. Um, <laughs> the truth of the matter, she's speaking of sexual pleasure. She's saying, my husband hasn't touched me in years. I'm useless. And I'm going to have a baby? Yeah, I don't think so. I don't think you see the whole story. And then verse 13. The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? She did not laugh out loud. It was not an LOL moment. She laughed to herself, and Abraham surely didn't know that she laughed because Abraham's not God. He doesn't know these things. So I think it's funny that God asks Abraham. Um, so Abraham's probably saying, what do you mean Sarah laughed? I didn't hear any laughter. Um, and so, but it's funny because he's, he's actually speaking to Sarah by speaking to Abraham. So much is going on. He says, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? This is amazing. Like God quotes exactly what Sarah said back to her without all of the self-hate. He takes all of that out of there. Then he says, is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year and Sarah shall have a son. And again, he's talking to Abraham. And you know he's in there thinking, God, you literally just told me this a few sentences ago. What's going on here? <laughs> Guys are so clueless. Um, then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Sarah steps out from the tent. She's in verse 15. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. Which we all would be here. Like, we're talking to ourselves in our mind, and God steps in and says, nope, that's not right. Um, and we're just freaked out by the fact that God heard our thoughts. But this is God. Like, our thoughts are speech before God. So, um, and I just love God's response. And he said, no, but you did laugh. And just like that, like, God ends the matter. 
He didn't blow up at her for laughing. He didn't get angry for lying to him. He just calls it out, and that's the end of it. He says, no, you did laugh. But here's the most amazing thing, because the word used for hard in verse 14 is used elsewhere as wonderful. Um, And I actually think that's a better translation than hard, because um, hard would imply that Sarah would have anything to do, um, but with wonderful, he's actually calling her to have wonder. Um, Jeremiah 32, verse 17 says, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too wonderful for you. The same word. The wonderfulness of God does something in Jeremiah. And Psalm 139 says, Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. We just saw that. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways, even before a word is on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot obtain it. The wonderful knowledge causes the psalmist to wonder, to be excited about what's going on. So when God poses this question to Sarah, he's he's actually asking her if there's anything too full of wonder that God cannot do. It's cause for thinking of all the wonders that God has done up to this point and to logically think, well, if, if God has done all of these things, those are wonderful things. Is there anything that God really cannot do? He asked Sarah to have wonder. Is anything too wonderful for me? Think about it, Sarah. Have wonder. The definition of wonderful is that which excites or calls forth wonder. And wonder is when you sit before the mountains or the ocean and your mouth is just open. Oh my gosh, this is amazing. Wonder is when you imagine your most desired place to live or or that vacation spot and you get goosebumps because you're almost there. Like you know that it's there and you're like excited. You're like, man, that's amazing. Wonder is when you see or imagine something intrinsically amazing and it brings about excitement in you. That's what God is calling Sarah to do. The reason that you and I love books and movies so much is because they call us to wonder. They just don't do it all the way. Uh, But they follow a formula that we love, one where there are three key elements to a wondrous story that actually cause us to wonder, and it is. Elements outside of our current reality, a mysterious and out there. Um, Two, a situation of doom. And three, a heroic key or rescue of of salvation. So Disney hooks us every single time with this simple formula. Take Frozen, for example. We have this magical story with a magically powerful sister in a far-off land that is magical, in a huge castle, so it's, it's already mysterious and out of this world, out of our reality. When everything goes wrong, She actually hurts her sister with her power, and then she gets upset, and she has to go where she can be alone, where she can let it go. Um, And because she has gone and done this, it leaves Arendelle in deep, 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 deep snow, if you've seen it. Um, And everyone's going to die, and and they're going to be under the kingship and the leadership of one of Disney's most hated characters of all time um, because of his out-of-nowhere betrayal, Prince Hans. Um, Spoiler alert, by the way. And he actually leaves a helpless Anna to die. So here's our situation of doom. We already have the first two. 
And through some crazy circumstances with a snowman and a reindeer and lovable Kristoff and some rock trolls, uh, Elsa comes down from her ice castle to show her sister a true act of love and to keep her from freezing unless she rescues and saves Anna and the whole city. And there's our heroic key. Every movie's the same way. We pay a bunch of money every summer to go see these summer blockbusters. They all have essentially those three same key elements. The movies that do really bad don't have those three elements. Frozen made so much money. But they actually, these three elements, they cause us to dream and to wonder and to long for such a place because everyone lives happily ever after and we don't want the story to end and it, because it gives us so much excitement. That's why when we leave the movie theater, we're sad. Like, man, I gotta get back in my junk car. Like, this isn't magical. Or when we close the book. I can't believe it's over. But what God is asking of Sarah is to believe in his wondrous story. He says, is anything too wonderful for me? I want you to believe in my story. It's a true story. And if you believe it, your whole life will be fully permeated with wonder. It's a wonder that lasts. It will not leave you once you're walking away from the theater or once you close the book. You are in need of wonder, and that's what I'm offering you. Because if you stepped into this story, you would know full well that I'm capable of such a feat. In this story, the impossible is made possible. I am the great storyteller who will show you all that I can do as the author. This is my story. I can do anything I want to do, and I will do great wonders. I will give you a baby. Believe. Believe my story. And it's the same thing that God is telling you and I today. If we believe that left unto ourselves, we are in a situation of doom because of the sin which we so freely choose, but that an element outside of our reality has broken the barrier that lies between us and God, and this hero has stepped in to rescue and save and to redeem and to bring us into the fold of God forever. Believe this story. And God does something that Disney never can. In Disney, the fairy tale endings are still endings. God's wonder never ends. God is the wonder that never ends, that we are to have, to believe in. When God asks Sarah if anything is too wonderful for him, for, her, um, for him, it's actually a trick question um, because he, he alone is the only one to work any wonders at all. So when he calls her to have wonder, he's actually calling her to believe in himself. Believe in me. How does he do that for us? Since, again, we aren't in this situation. He calls us to the one and only son that he sent. God in the form of Jesus is the heroic figure for all of our stories. It is utterly impossible for a sinful human to have a personal relationship with God, but Jesus has stepped in to make it so with arms wide open, calling us home, calling us to turn to him in salvation. That is a wondrous deed that should cause us to wonder with extreme excitement. And if that wasn't enough, just notice God's grace to both of the characters. These are two different humans, and so God treats them as such. God shows up to Abram in a way that, um, that he does, uh, and he does not show up that way with Sarah. Well, there are two different ways. There is no cookie-cutter style of Christianity because what God does in us is going to be different than what he does in others. 
For some people, God drastically moves and shapes and changes their lives, and it's, it's an amazing story. For other people, it's a gradual and slow process, and that's an amazing story. This means that we do not have to worry about our lives if they don't look like other people's, and it means that we don't have to worry about other people's if they don't look like ours. God speaks and moves and causes us to wonder as individuals in our own way that we will understand because he is a good and gracious God who cares enough to do so. That's why the gospel is good news for everyone who would believe. If God would gather up people from all tribes, tongues, and nations, he's going to have to speak to us and show up in our stories differently. I like things that you like differently. We're all different. What causes you to wonder is different than what causes me to wonder. How I serve is different than how you serve. And that's on purpose and by God's good design. God steps into the story of of sinful humans to be the hero for each story, whatever that looks like for each person, and he's able to. That's why his question is, what is too wonderful for me to do? And it shouldn't take us long to answer that. As we sit, this is God's question to us all. Is there anything too wonderful for the Lord? Maybe you, are, maybe you and I are facing an overwhelming illness. Is there anything too wonderful for the Lord? Maybe we look at our rebellious children and we feel that they are hopeless. Is there anything too wonderful for the Lord? Maybe we are facing old wounds that seem impossible to overcome. They're always there. Is there anything too wonderful for the Lord? Maybe we were raised in a dysfunctional home. Maybe we didn't have a mom or a dad. What are we supposed to do? Is there anything too too wonderful for the Lord? Those who feel that their marriage is hopelessly over, is there anything too wonderful for the Lord? If you sit here today and you think, surely God cannot save me. My sin is just too much. I can't turn uh, yet again. Is there anything too wonderful for the Lord? Because the truth of the matter is that God has sent us Jesus as the ultimate wonder, and in Jesus, we find our wonder. In Jesus, we have the power to serve and wonder forever. And so in response to that, uh, we're going to allow the Holy Spirit to serve us once more. And we're going to celebrate together with the Lord's Supper. As we do it, this is just a picture of what we will be doing forever. Sitting around the table, serving God and one another and being served, laughing and praising and talking and singing. And so if you have believed in this, Jesus, you're welcome to the table to participate with us as a family. If, however, you are not a believer, I ask that you remain in your seat on the basis of 1 Corinthians that says this is a family matter. But during this time, go to the Father with your sin and call out for, for grace and mercy. He will give it to you. Is there anything too wonderful for the Lord? Uh, a man by the name of John Stott, he sat in a church service where the preacher read from Revelation 3.20 which says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And the preacher posed this question, Have we ever opened the door to Christ? Later on that night, John would write these words. 
This was exactly the question which I needed to have put to me. For intellectually speaking, I had believed in Jesus all my life on the other side of the door. I had regularly struggled to say my prayers through the keyhole. I had even pushed pennies under the door in a vain attempt to pacify him. I had been baptized, yes, and confirmed as well. I went to church. I read my Bible. I had high ideals, good morals. I tried to be good and to do good, but all the time, often without realizing it, I was holding Christ at arm's length and keeping him outside. I made the experiment of faith and opened the door to Christ. I saw no flash of lightning. In fact, I had no emotional experience at all. I just crept into bed and went to sleep. For weeks afterwards, even months, I was unsure what had happened to me, but gradually I grew, as the diary I was writing at the time makes clear, into a clearer understanding and a firmer assurance of the salvation and lordship of Jesus Christ. What is true of all of us in this room is that we are either saved by grace through faith or we are not. We have either by the grace of God opened the door to Christ or we have not. Either we have had a personal experience with Christ that has become a relationship based on our admission of sin and our inability to save ourselves and a belief in Jesus Christ as the way into this relationship. Or we do not have it at all we're left in that situation of doom. Left to ourselves in a need, a deep need of a Savior. That's why God has given us the truth of Genesis 18, to remind us in the form of a question, is there anything too wonderful for me? If you are here today and you have not yet, by the grace of God and power of the Holy Spirit, open this door. Do so today. Believe in this story today. Feel the wonder of such a truth today. Turn from your sin today. I believe that you're here because God wanted you to hear this truth. For all of us, this is our prayer. Father, thank you for the wonder of Jesus who came to serve me that I may serve. Never cease to show me your wonder that I may always be reminded of it. If this is our story, we have turned from our sin and turned to Jesus in belief. And what of true is Je- true of Jesus is true of us when he says, when God says, well done, good and faithful servant. Come and share your master's happiness. We actually call it Palm Sunday because a large crowd heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him crying, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. And so he did just that. Palm Sunday reminds us that the reign of Christ is far greater than any any mind of man could ever conceive or plan. Man had looked for someone to fight their battles, that king that would rule in the present day world, yet God had the ultimate plan of sending his son to fight the final battle of death over death. Because of Christ's ultimate sacrifice, we can be set free of death. And he did all of this. On the night when he he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup 
after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that whether, whether today we have believed for the very first time or for the millionth time, you show up with grace and mercy to all of us who do not deserve it. The truth of, of Genesis 18, the truth of, of Jesus' life on our behalf, that, that you came to serve us, not to be served, but to serve us. So much so that you took death on a cross to make sure it happened. And the most amazing truth of that is that even, even then, that fairy tale ending for us was not an ending. That Jesus was resurrected. And because of that, defeated death on our behalf. And so now, on the basis of that heroic figure, Jesus, our story will never end if we believe. Would you help our belief and our unbelief, whatever it is we have, all of it that we have, and give us something to wonder in and to have excitement about today and the next day and the next day? Would you be with us? Would you help us? And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.